Amen. All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, and we're looking in chapter 6 is where we left off. It's been a few weeks. Uh, hopefully you have a, a pretty good memory. And um, the, to come back to where we are, to know where we are, we finished the eighth vision. We stopped there in the middle of chapter 6, and uh, Zechariah ends up waking up from this long night of eight visions, one right after another, where he's given, he's seen uh, these very interesting visions that have some very um, pr uh, uh, practical and yet future truth uh, that can be leaned upon. And in verse 9, if you're in chapter 6 of Zechariah, Scripture says, And then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them the captivity, even of Hildiah, Tobijah, and Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold, and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. And speak unto him, that's Joshua, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. He shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crowns shall be to Helam, and to, uh, to Tobijah, and to Jediah, and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are afar off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then uh, the word of the Lord stops at the end of chapter 6 right there, and then it will come back in chapter 7 in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord will come unto Zechariah again. So this actually finishes the first full section of the book of Zechariah. Section, um, the first section, 1 through 6, then 7 through 9, and then um, the last few chapters, uh, 10 through 14, in the, the three divisions of the book of Zechariah. Now, as, as you've read through the prophets and the minor prophets, if you're a student of God's word, you've realized that sometimes God asks the prophets to do some really weird things. He's used them as object lessons sometimes. Sometimes they see a vision and they see things that are weird. All right, what well, we say, I'm using the word weird, is because um, it's, it's, it's hard to explain. Um, and uh, so sometimes they see a vision. Sometimes God uses them in real life, outside of a vision, outside of a dream, but to act out something or to do something as an object lesson. And sometimes those things are kind of drastic and, uh, and they're used as an object lesson to teach a, le uh, a, teach a lesson. We learn through, um, through, through visuals. God's people were visual, uh, visual learners, just like we are visual learners at times. You remember Hosea was told to marry a prostitute. 
And then he was told to name his children some really weird names. If you remember in this, on, on Hosea. And those names, even though they're really weird, um, are teaching lessons that God is going to, to do that. But he does that in real life. He, 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 he literally asks Hosea to do that and he uses those experiences. Remember Jeremiah was to preach with a yoke around his neck. So here he comes to the steps of the temple and he's got this yoke around his neck and probably his arms are up in his neck and he's to preach a whole message while in this yoke. That was kind of a weird, um, weird uh, thing to do to preach. I'm glad God doesn't ask me to do that. Uh, what was even more interesting is that Jeremiah, uh, I think it was, uh, it was Isaiah that was told to take his clothes off and to walk around naked. And then that was going to be used as, uh, as an illustration of the shame and embarrassment that is going to happen. Remember, Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll. And, and so he's, you know, here he is, he's taking one of the scrolls and he needs to wad it up and you know, just kind of eat it and swallow it. It's going to be bitter. He's told to actually do that as an object lesson. He's also told to lay on his side for 390 days. All right, how about that? Is going to be just lay out there and lay on your side. Remember, Jeremiah was told to take a part of his garments. He was to wad them up. He was to take them to the Euphrates River, which was a whole trip that he was going to do. And then he was to bury them. And, uh, and, and that was, the whole trip, the whole issue was an object lesson that Jeremiah was going to be involved in. So oftentimes, God asked the prophets to do some really drastic things. Because to bring a shock factor, to try and teach a spiritual lesson, to, uh, to, to, to kind of say, whoa, that's, that's kind of weird that he would do that. What, do you, what are they doing? And then it also helps us to remember. You, you, you remember when you're reading through and you realize that, uh, I think it was um, uh, Ezekiel or maybe it was Jeremiah, you remember he was to make, uh, he was to make food um, b- uh, by adding the ingredients of manure. All right, how about a shock factor on that of how God is talking about the seriousness of sin? Some really weird things that you don't necessarily teach in a Sunday school lesson with uh, seventh grade boys. All right, that's not the type of, and, and you don't have a flannel graph of some of these things that you're, you're kind of showing in children's church. And uh, you say, well, you got to go to those parts and see what God is doing when he uses those drastic illustrations at times. And God does that to help us to remember. And he wants us to understand the seriousness of sin. And so oftentimes these drastic things, these object lessons that he tells these prophets to do uh, would be just as strange if they were happened in 2023 as if they happened in 500 B.C. But they were to teach a lesson and they were to help rem- uh, the Jewish people to remember. Sometimes memorials were set up. Things were created uh, to help them to remember things. A monument or stones as Joshua put stones in the, the Jordan River. Or, um, or, or monuments that were set up around, uh, the, around the nation of Israel and the land of Israel to teach them a lesson. So what happens is at the end of these eight visions that Zechariah sees... He wakes up the next morning and God's word comes to him and he's going to tell him to do something. So he's out of the vision. He's not seeing a vision anymore. He's going to transfer into now God says, I want you, the word of the Lord has come to you. Go out and do something. What he's going to do is going to be an object lesson of what God is going to now teach some prophecy. 
And the two things that he asked them to do is, number one, he asked them to take up an offering. That's what we read in verse 10. As the word of the Lord comes to him, he says, take of them the captives, and then verse 11, and take the silver and gold. So he's to go and collect an offering. This means that Zechariah was a good Baptist. He took an offering everywhere he went. Well, apparently, these three gentlemen who are mentioned in verse 10, Heldiah, Tobijah, and Jediah, are three men who are coming back from Babylon. During the time of of Zechariah, there were still people returning from Babylon and returning from Persia. It's almost like they were crossing the border, going through the checkpoint, and coming back from captivity, and coming and moving to Jerusalem. It would be similar to what happened after World War II, where continuing Jewish people over the course of several decades moved out of the nations of Europe and and even around, and moved back to Jerusalem in in the Holy Land. Well, this is exactly what's happening during the time of Zechariah. People are coming out of captivity... And they are moving back. And they come back in stages. And so probably every day at the border customs of Jerusalem, there were people who were coming back to participate in the building project of the temple that Zerubbabel was a part of, building the temple. Hey, Nehemiah is one of these who several decades later after Zechariah, probably about 50 years later, Nehemiah is someone who's, who's all the way back in, in, uh, in, in Shushan. He is impressed in his heart to return with a group of people and some finances to go back to Jerusalem and live there and build the walls. And so these three men who are named, we, we, don't, we don't know who they are other than the fact they're named here But they were walking in the street, coming back to find a place to live in Jerusalem. And Zechariah is told to go out there in the street, meet these three guys by name. Only God knows that. Only God knows where people are and has divine meetings and, and can actually pinpoint the house and the person and the date and the time. That's God's providence. So he directs Zechariah to go out into the street and take an offering. The phrase here, uh, if you have a different translation, actually is going to be take up an offering, a gift of silver and gold from these three individuals. Then he's told not only to take up an offering, but he's told to take it into a certain person's house. That is read in verse 11. And take the silver and gold, the offering that you collect, and make a crown, or make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua. At the end of verse 10, he's told to take that the same day and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. So God says, all right, take up the offering, and then I want you to go and knock on this guy's door. It's almost like um, what happened with Cornelius and Peter, uh, when God just sent an angel and said, all right, I'm going to divinely meet these two people in the, in the right house, and we're going we're gonna to have this, uh, this object lesson right in the doorstep of this man named Josiah. Don't think of the king Josiah. This uh, Josiah was a, uh, a popular name to the Jewish people. So here, here's get this picture. He's taken up an offering from these three gentlemen. He comes and walks up. Maybe they're just in line, and he says, uh, God told me to take up an offering from you. What do you have? Well, we've got silver and gold. Okay, here it is. Now, we need to come and take it to this guy named Josiah's house, son of Zephaniah, and there I'm told that we need to make some crowns. So um, the word here that's object lesson that is used here is plural, so that is, but the verb is singular. So it's, it's 
two crowns overlaid on top of one another. Some have indicated it's a silver crown and a gold crown that is laid. It's a double-decker crown because both crowns are going to be put on one head. And so we're not seeing two crowns. We're seeing a crown overladen with the other crown. And then that singular crown made of gold and silver overladen is then going to be placed upon the head of this individual. Look afterwards is what he's told in verse 14. After the crown is made, after the crown is placed on uh, Joshua's head in verse 14, he is to take the crowns and they will be to Helam, which is the same as uh, uh, Heldai, just another name uh, seems to be, and to Debijah and to Jediah and to Hen, that seems to be a, a, a nickname for Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, and it was going to be for them to be put as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. So here's this object lesson. He makes this crown. He puts it on Joshua's head. He says a bunch of things that we're going to see here in just a moment. Then at the end, he's to take that crown and he is to take it into the temple. And there he is to set it up as a memorial for everyone to see. Now interesting is this crown being used as a, as a memorial. Something to remember. What is a memorial? A memorial is something to remind us of an event. Um, it was to be an object lesson that Zechariah was to use so that every time someone saw this crown in the temple, they were to remember the promises of God. Now the question is, where did this crown go? Jewish tradition says that this crown hung in Zerubbabel's temple in a window. Probably during some of the Maccabean revolt during the intertestinal period, this crown probably was taken and stolen and plundered as Jerusalem was constantly plundered back and forth. So we have no record post this event, post the tradition of it hanging in the window in the temple that, um, of where, where it is. It was, it was meant for a specific time to be a memorial for remembrance. It's like a relic. We Baptists don't like relics. But in Catholicism and Anglicanism and a lot of other religions around the world, there's all kinds of relics. You can go to every, any cathedral in Europe and there's some kind of relic that people go and they're praying to and they're trying to touch and they're trying to give them and, and they're trying to remember something and they claim it has healing powers and you know it can heal me of my sicknesses and all this other stuff and all of that is just hogwash. No wonder Baptists just want to stay away from relics. However, we do have certain things that bring to us uh, a memory. You know, I, I've probably been in so many different Baptist churches, you know, somewhere in the Baptist church, either either out on the steeple, somewhere in the auditorium or something, we have hanging what? A cross. Now, we don't, we don't worship this cross necessarily, but it is a relic that is often found in a lot of churches. What for? To remind us of the cross of Christ. Um, we have podiums, a pulpit, what we call a, a pulpit in Alabama. This is a place where we would have lectern, where we would set the word of God. And in a Baptist church, it is set at the center of the platform. 
been an Anglican or uh, another church, a Catholic church, oftentimes the lecterns and the uh, pulpits are off to the side or something like that. But in a Baptist church, it's in the center of, of the room, in the center, because this is the focus. It's, it's, a, it's a piece of furniture. But this furniture, when you walk into this building, it reminds us of something. It reminds us the authority and the power of the Word of God. Um, we can also see other things that happen. I, I mentioned steeples. Steeples have been a relic or, or a piece of furniture that oftentimes would remind us. That goes back to the Puritan times and as well as even connected in, uh, in the Middle Ages to churches. Does it have to have a steeple? No, you don't have to have a steeple. All right? But um, it's oftentimes something that you would find in a place of worship. It's a tradition that has been passed on, but I think it is a good reminder. All right? It's a good reminder. Everybody in the neighborhood sees this building. They recognize it's a church. Oftentimes on steeples, there are some crosses. How about church bells? That has been a tradition and oftentimes a relic that a lot of people um, throughout, especially during the colonial period, um, had church bells, and those became very important and prominent. What about things like plaques? If you walk down the hallway right here on both sides, you're going to have pictures of the history of this church. Buildings, people, memories. Right? Oftentimes in a church, you're going to have a plaque of, of either people who have donated or, or people who have made an impact or Sunday school teacher or, or, or pastors or missionaries or things to help us remember certain things. Right? We, we, it, we have, even though we stay away from relics because we don't want to worship them and they don't have any kind of uh, a power to, to heal us or anything, but it is oftentimes uh, something part of who we are that we need objects to remind us of things so that we don't forget. I mentioned Sunday morning. God established for the New Testament church two ordinances. Something that we do, something that we see, something that is surrounding who we are that is to be done regularly and, um, and, and biblically and theologically in the right way to remind us. They are in, in remembrance of the Lord, whether that's baptism or it's communion. Not means of grace. Not getting us, you know, closer to the Lord because, you know, we, we somehow get sins forgiven because we, we do that thing. But as reminders about some seriousness that God has put in. So when we go back to Zechariah, he makes this crown and then at the end of the object lesson, he is to hang it in the temple. And for those people following Zechariah, it was to be a constant reminder of, the, of this promise and, and these uh, prophecies for them over and over and over again. And interesting enough, this crown points to Jesus Christ. In Zechariah, in the Old Testament, a relic, if you want to say, if you want to use that word, a, a memorial object made of silver and gold hanging in possibly the window of Zerubbabel's temple probably for a couple decades, uh, or a couple centuries, I would have probably uh, think, and eventually, every time someone came in, they saw that crown up in the window, they were to think of this prophecy right here. So what is significant about the object lesson? Well, let's look down in verse 12. Verse 11, this is what he's supposed to do with it. He is supposed to take this crown of silver and gold, 
and he is to place it on the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, who is the high priest. Now this is interesting that he would put it on Joshua, who is the high priest, and not Zerubbabel, who is the governor or in line for the throne. In fact, there are some Jewish manuscripts of the book of Zechariah that this verse has been manipulated and purposely changed. And it doesn't read Joshua, the son of Josedach, but it actually reads Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiah. Because to put a crown on a priest, a high priest, was very inconsistent and unique and would not have been done by the Jewish people. So when Zechariah takes this crown, calls the high priest from the temple to come to this guy Josiah's house and stands there in the, in the house and then he is going to perform a coronation. He has him kneel down or however he has him and then he takes this crown. Here's a prophet, Zechariah, takes this crown and in front of all of these people, he puts it on his head. And then he says these words, then he takes it off and takes it to the temple. So what is the significance of, of what is this crown is going to teach? And it's all, remember, it's all an object lesson. And what he says while he's holding this crown over Joshua's head is the key or the culmination of what this object lesson is going to teach us. Verse 12, and speak unto him and say, thus speaks the Lord of hosts. This is God. And what he wants you to remember when you see this crown hanging in the window in the temple. Behold the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now I'm going to stop right there. There are six things that are prophesied in this that are looking forward to uh, the person of the Messiah. This is clearly talking about someone other than Joshua. Other than Zerubbabel. This is a foreshadow of the one who will to come, be, uh, to come. And so Joshua is being used as a, as a representative as he's kneeling there with this crown over his head. But this is not talking about Joshua. There are some commentators who indicate that this is the meaning that is connected to Joshua and Zerubbabel. But pretty much most conservative commentators, whether they see this as a present, they all would go and see this as ultimately being fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus himself. And he's told that he, it is told and prophesied that he will do six things. Some people see eight in the list. I've just, um, it makes more sense for me to see these six things that he was going to do. Number one, he will grow up out of his place. You see that in verse 12. He is called the branch, which is connected, but he is, uh, so we know this in, in, uh, is talking about the Messiah. He will grow up out of his place. What does a branch do? A branch grows. The word branch actually means sprout. It's, it's not a stick, it's not a twig, it's a branch that is growing up out of a stump. That's the, that's the figure of speech that is used here. Um, you see, at this time in Israel, the kingdom of David, the tree and dynasty of David, the seed of David, running through the bloodline of one son after another son, actually was sitting in the body of Zerubbabel. His name is in the line of Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. We read that just a few weeks ago. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. Zerubbabel is. But 
what is going on? Where is the power? Where is the authority? It's been cut off. It's been cut off by foreign powers. The line of David has been cut off. It's just a tree that's been cut off and it's overgrown. And all you see is the stump. And the stump is, 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 um, is Zerubbabel. And it will continue that way all the way until you find yourself with a little carpenter in Nazareth. It's still a stump. Where is the bloodline of the dynasty of David when Matthew opens up? It's in a man named Joseph who's hiding in a village up in Nazareth, a nowhereville. And that's where the royal line of David is sitting. Until Gabriel comes along and says, a branch is going to grow out of that little nowhereville stump. And he's going to grow up out of that. And Luke chapter 2 tells us about the life twice in Luke chapter 2 about Jesus himself. He grew in favor with God and man. He grew in stature. He grew in his life. As he was born in Bethlehem, moved to Nazareth, and then he grew up that what good can come out of Nazareth? The branch. Indication of the fact that he's going to grow up and he's going to sprout. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That is the man. That is the line of David. That is the branch that's going to grow up as this little bitty baby in an obscure carpenter's home in Nazareth. And he's going to grow up and be the king of the world. That's the Messiah. And Luke makes sure that we know that he is born And he grows in his place and he will become the king. He will take that stump that has been cut off and out of the middle of it, he'll branch out. That's why four times when we were in the previous vision that we addressed those verses that are used both in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah as Jesus being the branch. So that's the first thing he's going to do. The next thing he's going to do in this verse is that he is going to build the temple of the Lord. And he says it twice. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. And this is in the emphatic. This means he himself will do it. No one else will help him. He alone will build the temple of the Lord. Now this is not talking about Zerubbabel's temple. I don't believe this is even talking about his body. Do you remember when Jesus stood before the Pharisees and he said, this temple is going to be destroyed and in three days I will rise it up again. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. I don't believe this passage here is connected specifically to that. I believe this passage is connected to a future prophecy that is connected to the king who will build a temple in the millennial kingdom. Now, when I was in a seminary, I wrote a paper on Ezekiel 40 through 48. If you know Ezekiel 40 through 48, Ezekiel there in those eight chapters is seeing a future temple that is built in the millennial kingdom. And there in that temple that's going to be built, there God is going to dwell. It actually says it in that passage. It actually says specifically that the soles of the feet of God will walk in its places. 
is going to walk. So God himself is going to walk around in that temple that Ezekiel sees. I believe Ezekiel's vision of 40, 40 through 48 and Zechariah's prophecy of the temple is the same temple. I believe there's a connection here. And it is the Messiah's temple that is going to be rebuilt in the millennial kingdom. I wish I could take you through that passage in Ezekiel. You should do some of your own reading. Can I just give you some notes um, from, from some of my study from that? In the land of Israel around Jerusalem, Ezekiel is taken to a future city of Jerusalem where the typology is all changed. He's taken to a high, t a high mountain and he's going to overlook Jerusalem. There is no high mountain in Jerusalem that overlooks the city. This is going to be a change. There's going to be a river flowing out of the center of the temple in Jerusalem. There has never been a river flowing out of the temple in Jerusalem in the center of the town. Never been. There are rivers around in the valley, but never one. However, John says that he sees in the New Jerusalem, he sees a river that is flowing out. So there's a connection there. He measures this temple. Zechariah or uh, Ezekiel in chapter 40, he measures the outer court. Chapter 40, verse 28 through 47, he measures the inner court, the building proper. In chapter 42, the first 14 verses talks about the surrounding buildings that are going to be take place and their dimensions. Chapter 42, 15 through 20, the walls that will surround this temple. Chapter 43 of Ezekiel 13 through 27, there's a full description of an altar that is built that is 30 by 30 and 19 feet tall. There is an enormous amount of detail of all of these measurements. Doors, gates, walls, posts, tables, pillars, porches, rooms, all in detail. Ralph Alexander said in his commentary, the abundant detail is sufficient enough to specific plans to be drawn and models to be constructed with a fair degree of accuracy. The same amount of detail that is given to Ezekiel's temple in chapter 40 through 43 is the same amount of detail that is given to the tabernacle in the, in the, Pentateuch, uh, in the Pentateuch and to the temple for Solomon in the book of Kings. So you have three, the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, and then a future temple that's going to be rebuilt. And the details and the descriptions of the rooms, the doors, the posts, the dimensions of the altar, the, the, um, the, the uh, holy places, and all of that is given with uh, uh, great accuracy. Number three, the temple will be the place of God's presence. Ezekiel 43 and verse 5, God's presence will dwell with them. Um, and it will dwell with them forever. This is a statement that is never used of Solomon's temple. God never told Solomon that he would dwell in his temple forever. But in Ezekiel's temple, the passage says that God will dwell with his people in that temple forever. There's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant in those eight verses, or those eight chapters. The temple is described as the place of the sole of his feet. Just imagine going to temple one day in the future and there on the platform is not Pastor Cochran, is not Dr. Mack, but is Jesus Christ. That would be a great day to go to church when Jesus is there. And I imagine, I wonder if he's walking barefoot. And you can see the pierce uh, of the nails, the prints of the nails in his feet. Interesting that um, some, some um, 
discussion has gone about because there's a full length in Ezekiel about in that future temple, there will be sacrifices that will happen. Ezekiel 43, 13 through 27 describes this altar and the sacrifices that are going to take place. Part of the worship in this temple will also be singers and choirs. You want to know what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom? What's going to happen one day in the future where Jesus comes and rules and reigns? What are we going to be doing? We're going to be taking part in singing and choirs and music and service. There are priests who will go around and perform duties. They won't be making sacrifices. They will be serving and cleaning up. Taking part, not as mediators, but as facilitators. One uh, commentator mentioned, much like pastors and deacons do today, these priests who will be serving in that future temple will be just helping and serving as people come and go. Uh, so as you kind of see that, when we come to this verse, one day the Messiah is going to build up his own temple and then he's going to set himself up as high priest in that temple. Let me just mention by name these other few in verse 13. He is said to bear the glory. This basically means to be clothed with glory. He will be the glory of God in that temple. He will sit and rule on his throne. Jesus does not sit and rule on the throne of David today. But he will one day. This is a literal throne. This is a literal temple. Jesus will, will be here on earth. He will be a priest on this throne. This again is allusion to the crown on Joshua's head where the two offices of priest and king are placed into one person, which it never has been done. But it will be under Jesus. He will be, be both mediator as priest and he will be ruler as king. And then verse 15 says that he will bring all people to the temple to worship God. He will bring people who are far off in the t to come to the temple and help in gifts and offerings to Jehovah in this temple. And it will involve trips. You want to know what's going to happen during the millennial kingdom? People will be making yearly journeys to Jerusalem to see Jesus face to face. Can you imagine what that journey would be like? We, not like, oh, we got to go to church today. Oh, we got to go to temple to make sacrifices today. No, we get to go see Jesus today, kids. That, that's what's going to be talked about. And I don't know about you, but I may plan four or five visits that year just to go see Jesus face to face. And then go back out and take out the trash, whatever else the Lord has asked me to do in the millennial kingdom. But imagine thousands, millions, billions of people who are living in the kingdom, who will take part in journeys to Jerusalem on a regular basis so that they can see Jesus sitting upon his throne and be reminded of his sacrifice. That's what we're going to be doing. We're not just going to be sitting around playing harps. We're going to be serving, doing tasks that will involve worship, but then it will also involve trips to see Jesus. You see, the main issue that's in the mind of these readers is that to be a part of that future kingdom, that every time they looked at that crown that was hanging in the window of the temple, they were to be reminded that the only way I can be a part of those future blessings is just look at the last phrase of the chapter. If you will diligently obey. 
You see, there is no participation in the kingdom without first repentance, turning and obeying God's word. This is a reminder to the Jewish people. Look what you get to look forward to, but you can't have it unless you repent. You can't have it unless you obey my commandments. This is not teaching um, you, be, you, you earn your salvation by doing these things and being obedient to the commandments. No, this is talking about obeying the command of repenting and accepting the promise of salvation that only comes in God. Not through idols or good works or your Judaism or your circumcision or anything like that. But the focus on the promise of God. And so this prophecy concludes. The whole prophecy, the whole crown, the whole meaning of this is all about the Messiah who is the branch. Who is going to come and bring salvation to the world. Being obedient to God in this specific prophecy here is accepting the king when he comes. So you see how this is preparing. This is getting ready to close the Old Testament. And as the Old Testament closed, you got Zechariah, you got Malachi. Going to close the Old Testament. What is on the mind as they come into the temple and they see that crown, as they go into a, a, an area of 400 dark years where the, where the throne of David and the dynasty of David has been cut off, it's just a stump. It's to remember the promise that if I will obey promise of God and when the Messiah comes and when the King comes I will accept him as my Savior then I will be able to participate in that kingdom that is being promised where Jesus will rule and reign and bring peace on earth so the end of chapter 6 of these eight visions ends with an object lesson an offering being taken a crowning that has been done and then all a focus to look back at Jesus Christ it's just a reiteration of all of these visions together. Father, thank you that we have promises that we can stand upon as we sang this evening. And even in the Old Testament, someone once said, every page that we turn in the Old Testament, there's Jesus. And probably no place in all of the Old Testament more so than that, that you find than in the book of Zechariah where Jesus actually is in every prophecy, in every object lesson, for every comfort and every hope of the Jewish people to point them to the coming king. What a shame it is and what a shame it was when he showed up in a manger and they weren't ready for him. And then when he came to Jerusalem and offered himself as the very prophecy of Zechariah, they rejected him. And your people today continue to reject Jesus of Nazareth as the King of Kings. Lord, one day all Israel would be saved and Paul prays that that salvation would come to pass and we pray for the peace of Israel and the peace of Jerusalem, that they will accept the Messiah. Thank you that you have brought those who are far off. That's us. That's the wise men. That's the Gentiles of this world. That's the people like Cornelius who have now been engrafted into that promise and we can be a part of, we can be a people of God too alongside Israel. And that one day we can enjoy a, uh, a, the kingdom promise that was given to David. We as Gentiles who are not Jews can enjoy the promise of that, that future kingdom and that future king. 
we pray that you would help us this week and thank you for your promises in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, God bless you. You are dismissed.